Thank you, Lewis. Betsy and I greatly appreciate your prayers deeply. I uh, wanted to remind everybody, if you have uh, not been with us recently, we have been going through the book of James, and we are completing chapter 1 this morning, and uh, Lewis has led us through the study of this chapter up through verse 25, so we're just going to be looking at the last two verses that are a capstone of uh, this study this morning. I want to begin by telling you about two, two Christian girls, both from conservative homes, both uh, part of their church youth group, both have prominent fathers, both in love with their high school boyfriend, both made a mistake, both got pregnant, both were repentant. Both boyfriends said, so long. And both girls were utterly vulnerable. All four parents were professing Christians, or in James' terminology, hearers of the word. The parents of one girl faced the truth alongside her, loved her, did not reject her didn't hide what happened, loved their daughter through it. Uh, she did go away to have the baby, and a baby was given in an open adoption. And uh, she was loved by her Christian community. Uh, today she lives in another state, and uh, she's had a challenging life, but it's been a good life, and she and her husband are our good friends. The other girl sat across from my desk uh, when I was teaching at the college, utterly broken. Her father was a deacon in a large Chattanooga church, and uh, he did not want his daughter's sin to stain his good name. So he secretly arranged for her to have an abortion. And as she sat there, she was sobbing, she was vulnerable utterly broken. This father put his good name above the name that is above all names. Now, these are two extreme examples, but they're not that uncommon, to tell you the truth. These examples expose the difference between someone who is both a hearer and a doer of the word and someone who claims to be a hearer but is a hearer only. Lewis just read verses 12 through 27, and three times in these verses we are told to ingest the Word of God, but not just for the sake of knowledge. We, are, we read in verse 22, if you're looking in your text, prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And that word delude three times in this chapter also. James warns, just using different words, warns against deluding ourselves. So you have two groups here, hearers who do the word and hearers who delude themselves, the doers and the deluders, I guess. And the question is, which category are you in? Which category am I in? 
I mean, and we're not talking about perfection here. I think we understand that. Uh, we are on a journey in a direction, but the question is, what is the direction of your heart and will? We were discussing this in our growth group Wednesday night, and uh, Steve was leading, and uh, he asked the question, if, and look at the, look at the chapter, he asked the, the question, what would you say to a person who stops at verse 21? That is, receive the word implanted, which is able to save, able to save your souls. What if he stops there and doesn't go on to verse 22? Prove yourselves doers, not merely hearers. So that was the question that he asked, and, and several great answers were given. And, and Sam reminded him of the contrast, or reminded us of the contrast in Matthew 7. And I'm just going to read these verses to you. Just listen up. Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So you've got hear and act and hear, but don't act. James tells us the difference between these two kinds of people and what they have to do with the word in verses 23 and 24. Anyone who's a hearer but not a doer is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. The word for man is the word actually literally male. <laughs> not the word for humanity. Yeah, it's just like a guy. So that's what he is like. He may be deeply interested in the word intellectually. He may build a Bible house, but it's built on sand. He does not have the word implanted. And the contrast is in verse 25, the one who looks intently into the word for the purpose of understanding for the purpose of internalizing, and then for the purpose of applying it. And I love the word, who looks intently into the word. That's the same word that's used, and Lewis mentioned this last week. It's the same word that's used in John 20. When John, the apostle John, ran to the tomb of Jesus. He didn't go in, he stood outside. Remember, it was sunrise, and he was looking into the dark tomb. Looking intently, you know, you know what it's like when the when, when it's bright around you and you're looking into something that has shadows and darkness, you really have to focus and, and deeply try to make out the contrast and what's, what's going on in there. It's used a few verses later, same word used of Mary when she arrived at the tomb moments later and she looked intently into that tomb. And the idea is, you know, they don't understand everything that's going on inside there, but they are looking, they are engaged, they're their eyes are focused on that task, looking intently, first of all, for the purpose of internalizing. And that's a process that happens when you look intently in the Word. And then if, uh, if you have 
uh, have heard what the word of God says. It overflows. It comes from the inside out. The Apostle Paul said, work out your own salvation, not work for. It's within you, work it out. For God is at work in you, both the will and the work for his good purpose. So his, this is what he is talking about. You receive the word implanted. Paul puts it this way, that the word of Christ richly inhabit or colonize within you <laughs> that's more than just live there that's that's involvement richly colonize in your hearts so that you do it if you receive the word implanted if the word embedded what that means is the word of god is over you as god's authority that second father i mentioned he was over the word in his application. He didn't apply it at all. In fact, the word was below him. He was the authority. He might glance at the word out of curiosity, but instead of look, looking intently, and I want you to get this, instead of looking intently, he just looks away. Clueless about the importance of the choice that he has just made. He is tragically self-deceived. Self-righteous people tend to assume that the image that they project to others is the image that God embraces of them too. That that's how God sees them. But the mirror of the word is what tells us how God sees us. It's an easy thing to fool other people about who you really are. It's actually not that hard to fool yourself about who you really are. But if you think you have fooled God, then you have fooled yourself about yourself. Well, in today's text in verse 26, James addresses that self-deception. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and by the way, I, sometimes you hear Christianity is not a a religion, it's a relationship. Well, it is a religion, too. <laughs> the term religion is kind of a neutral term. It can be good or bad. Uh, James contrasts good and bad religion. And, and, and immediately, a whole group of people say, hey, excuse me, I, okay, that's me. I'm religious. And James says, not so fast. Basically, as these two verses give a capstone to the chapter, they explain with diagnostic tests what it looks like to be both a hearer of the word and a doer of the word. And I'm going to summarize these two verses with three checkpoints. Check your words, check your motives, and check your thoughts. First of all, check your words. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. One scholar puts it this way, he lets his tongue go like an unbridled horse. That's the idea. No restraints. No guardrails on what comes out of his mouth. Question. Of all the sins that he, James could have pointed out, why does he point this one out? It seems very specific. The words that you speak. I mean, he's giving us a practical diagnostic test of whether you're a doer of the word. And his gauge is your words. Well, James, my friends, was a pastor. And 
He had seen firsthand how words could build or how words can destroy a family, a church, a community. Look at, hold your place here and turn to chapter 3, verse 2. James says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, here, here he approaches it from a different point of view, but his point is the same. This is the only other occurrence of the word bridle in the entire New Testament, and it's on the same point. Chapter 3, the point there is self-control of, the, of your speech is the gauge of whether or not you have the Spirit. It's, it's self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. God's view of you doesn't depend upon how others view you or how you view yourself. Check out your words. Think of it this way. The, the words that you speak are a gauge of your spiritual life. The way, the way that you control your tongue is a gauge of the way that you control other areas of your life. Get that? So think of it, think of it like this. And I'm going to get in trouble with, my, with the medical personnel in here. Uh, the eye offers a diagnostic test for the body's circulatory system. Our son is a type 1 diabetic. And that awful disease affects the circulatory system. And the back of, and, and I'm going to read, I'm going to quote this. The back of the eye is the only place in the body where a doctor can directly view the blood vessels. Unquote. And I got that from the internet, so I know it's true. <laughs> it comes down to this. For my son, how's he doing? Check his eyes. How are you doing spiritually? Check your words. If you control your tongue, that's a good indicator of, how, of a healthy spiritual life as a whole. If you don't, and that's what he's looking at here, a negative diagnostic test, that means that something is badly wrong, and that needs to be addressed. Don't let that go. Now, we're going to say a whole lot more about this when we get to chapter 3. I do want to make a few comments about this because he mentions this right here as something that's very important. And I want to commend to you Ephesians 4 to get a short course on the test of words. I'm going to read to you from two verses in Ephesians 4. So just bear with me and listen up. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. So... The test of words, first of all, are they true? Okay, not, that's not hard. We get that one. Are you speaking truth? And then he continues a few verses down. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. That's the same word for building something, like an edifice. Edification. According to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. So, do your words edify? Two tests of truth. First of all, speak. Um, two tests of words. Speak truth. God is true. Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said the Spirit, when he comes, will guide us into all the, what's the word? Truth. He is the Spirit of truth. Truth is triune. It, it's one of the attributes of God that we are to work out in our lives in practical ways. 
by the way, I should mention that by contrast, Scripture says Satan is a liar and the father of lies. John 8. So, first of all, speak truth. Secondly, speak words that build or edify. What that means is you don't have to speak every true word that you know. James has talked about that earlier. Be quick to hear and what? Slow to speak and slow to anger. So the test of words is not just whether or not they're true. That's assumed. But whether or not they build. And the Bible is just consistent all over itself. (laughs) And here's just a list from various passages of the kinds of speech that we should bridle. And I'm not going to read all the passages. I'm just going to list. It almost sounds like one of the sin lists in the New Testament. Listen to this. Cursing, coarse language, ruthless speech. That's speech that wounds, malicious. Sexual innuendo, sarcasm, from the Greek word for flesh. It was used of uh, dogs ripping the flesh. Sarcasm. Complaining. And big one on the list. Gossip. And the list goes on. One form of deceptive speech in, in, in recent days is, is uh, in recent decades is some of you have heard of apologies that aren't. Apologies that aren't. That's where you use words to inflate yourself while pretending to be gracious about the fact that somebody else, that forward benighted person, took offense at what you said. It's not, I was wrong, I'm sorry. It's not, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. It's, mistakes were made. Some third person thing over there. Even worse, I'm so sorry that you took offense. Imagine David repenting of adultery and murder in Psalm 51. Oh God, mistakes were made. I'm not sure how, but some people may have been hurt. And I apologize, oh God, if you chose to take offense. But I've moved on, Lord, and I hope you have too. Does this echo what we see in political discourse these days? As I said, more about this when we get to James chapter 3. But it's clear that James is talking about more than words. He's talking about an unbridled tongue as a symptom of something that's very wrong inside and that needs to be addressed. Now, before we move to the next checkpoint, first of all, check your words. I just want to remind you that the person James is describing is not being a hypocrite in his own mind. He's not pretending. He is self-deceived. He is convinced that he is right. Being deceived is bad, but being self-deceived makes me more accountable before God. I am am sure that that father, that second father that I told you about, is self-deceived. Hey, I go to church regularly. I give. I'm a hearer of the word in New Testament terms. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm a deacon in my church. I look into the mirror. What mirror? We excuse ourselves, we deceive ourselves by not looking intently in the mirror of the word, by assuming that the image that we project to others 
is true. And we excuse, sometimes we excuse our behavior as, as genetic. Hey, I'm Italian, so I'm naturally exuberant. Or, hey, I'm French, so I'm naturally arrogant. Or, hey, I'm Irish, so I naturally have a temper. Or maybe we do it as social conditioning. Hey, I'm a Yankee, so I'm naturally blunt. Hey, I'm a Southerner, so I'm naturally sweet. Bless my heart. But even if some, be, and, I, and I, I know I'm making fun of that, but it is true that some people were raised in really hard background, with really hard backgrounds, tough family situations, they've come up hard. But is any of that provide any excuse for us to ignore what God's word says about looking intently into the word and following it and living it out? No, that is, this is a choice that we make as we grow into the image of Jesus. Now, now here's, now for the positive statement, verse 27, to become a doer of the word and not a hearer only, we're to do two things, visit orphans and widows and live a clean life, and that's it, right? We're done. Uh, set us up for the visitation schedule somewhere. Or is there more to it than that? Remember, James is not reducing faith to doing good works in a social welfare program or checking things off of a code of conduct that's legalistic. He's aiming for acting on what has, now get this, what has been implanted in your heart. So what has been implanted in your heart and how is it working out? So first of all, we looked at check your words. Secondly, check your motives. And then we'll look at checking your thought life. Look at verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. And he mentions the two things. To visit orphans and widows in their distress, in their adversity, in their affliction. And secondly, to keep oneself unstained by the world. So how does our God and Father measure your soul? How does he appraise your religion? Is it pure and undefiled? And let, just let me... I want to teach this part of it to, to you. Um, I, I think it's important. These two words are not saying the same thing twice. He doesn't say pure and pure. He doesn't say undefiled and undefiled. The word pure refers to something that was once impure in this context and now has been cleansed. And, and I think the full picture of it is something, I, I think it's like this. Before we were saved, our good works did not save us. But now, now, they have been cleansed. They flow from the inside out because we have the word implanted. Paul called his own good works before he was saved dung. Not because they weren't good works, but rather because his old motive was to score points with God. But if your good works flow out of your salvation, your new motive is purified. Because it's to please your Lord. You know you can't you don't score points with Him. He's given you all the grace and all the love you could ever handle and ever will be able to handle. He can't love us more than He does. We don't earn greater increments of His love. No. So our service back to Him is rendered out of a desire to please Him. The second word, undefiled, is an, you know, it's a little technical, it's an adjective 
that comes from the negative of a verb that means to stain with a color. And the idea is to, to keep your service for Jesus unstained because Satan would love to take your good works, your service rendered to Jesus, and smear grime all over it and make it a source of public ridicule. He is on the prowl as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And as others have said, Christians are high on his menu. His desire is to ruin you and to tempt you to render service and tweak your motives. He wants your motive to be, to be seen of men. Or maybe to puff yourself up. He wants you to want to be admired by other people. Remember what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, do you do it to be seen of men? When you fast, do you do it to be seen of men? When you give alms, do you do it to be seen of men? Or, in contrast, Jesus says, do these things secretly. Your Father who sees them secretly, who sees secretly, will reward you. So, what is he talking about? Visiting widows and orphans. This is more than what you and I mean by the word visit. You know, I'm going to drop by for 20 minutes. We're going to have a visit. It's the same word from which we get our word overseer, synonym with elder. And I, I know that we have social safety nets in place today that didn't exist in the first century for people who have uh, financial distress. But what this is talking about is deeper than that. It's about being involved with people who are in need, who are in your orbit, who are in your life. The perfect application for this we see in the book of Acts. The Jerusalem church realized that their widows weren't being cared for properly, and they addressed it. In fact, they established a group of people to address it. They were called deacons. That's where they came from, to make sure that those needs were met. But again, the idea of, of visit also implies that you're checking on someone to make sure to see how they are. It, it refers at least to involvement in their lives so that you know that their needs are being met. And it's not just physical needs. It's emotional needs. It's loneliness, friendship, love. And, and by the way, guess who became the pastor of that Jerusalem church? Give me his name. The guy who became the pastor of the Jerusalem church. James. Thank you. James. Same guy. And, and the, the way that the church cared for its own became a huge part of its testimony to the community, to the city, to the region, throughout the decades and then beyond that to the centuries as that care expanded, as people looked intently in the word and it flowed out of them. So this is not, if you'll forgive me, this is not about somebody that approaches you on the street for money. This is not about windshield cleaning entrepreneurs or some need that you may see on the TV. It's not only about helping people and, and something like the devastation of, of Hurricane Ian, although isn't it interesting that whenever, whenever FEMA, FEMA finally leaves, the groups that are the last to leave are the churches every time. And, and maybe, maybe for our students especially, this is important to say, because sometimes you hear, oh, you Christians are, you know, no good, no good. And the Crusades, don't forget the Crusades. Um, I think it's important to say that throughout history, Christians have been the ones responsible 
for all kinds of social reforms, prison reform, mental asylum reform, extended medical care, trade unions that, that stop the exploitation of women in factories, child labor laws, abolition of slavery, establishment of orphanages, reform of the penal code, of the penal code and the list goes on. Has the church been slow to respond to needs at times? Yes, but we got there eventually. And of course, somebody always brings up the Crusades, the Crusades, because they're just like Islamic Jihad, those Christians, all religions are the same, they're all bad, as if the Crusades cancel out all the good things that the Christians have done over the centuries. But listen, friends, and I, I think I mentioned this to you once before, Jihad happens when Muslims follow what Muhammad told them to do. Crusades happen when Christians, so-called, defy what Jesus told them to do and do the opposite. The church over history has been busy doing good. And we as a church, Signal Mountain Bible Church, have helped uh, many people with those needs over the years, and we still do today. But helping people in the needs, it, again, in the context, that's not ultimately what this is about. This is not about the recipients. It's about the motives of your heart as you render that help. And exhibit A for this is widows and orphans. That is, people who cannot do anything for you in return. You got that? Helping people who can't help you back. What does that mean? It means that your motives have to be pure. That's why it's a gauge. That's why it's a good test. They can't help you back. Your motives can't be mixed. Now, in that day, they didn't have the safety nets we do today, but that does not get us off the hook, okay, in, in any way for the depth of concern and help that is described here. So, whoever fits into this category, that is, the vulnerable, those who are hurting, the least of these. In fact, the same word visit is in Matthew chapter 25. And if you'd like to turn there with me, I want, I'm going to read a few verses in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 40. Now, this is pure and undefiled religion to visit orphans and widows in their distress, meaning to engage with them, to be involved with them as an overseeing ministry that is a part of your life. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. But the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed uh, of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, all right, you ready for it? Here it is. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And there's the word, visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you thirsty or give you something to drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Clear? Point made? And then after that, God gives horrific judgment on those who did none of those things, even though they claimed to know him. The clear contrast is between false religion and pure and undefiled religion. And, and Jesus' strongest condemnation, actually to hell, was people who think themselves religious while at the same time, and I'm reading from Mark 12, devour widows' homes. And his point is that uh, they're embezzling properties from people who are vulnerable. And the verse continues, listen to this, and for appearance's sake, offer long prayers. You hear that? For appearance's sake, offer long prayers. Very religious. Here's the devastating verdict at the end of that verse. These will receive greater condemnation. Not just condemnation. There are levels of punishment in hell. So are we still practicing this part of pure and undefiled religion? Are we doing it here? Individually? Or maybe groups of friends? I will tell you, individually, I hear things, and I know many of you are. And I know that there's a lot that I don't hear that's going on that pleases the Lord. I hear stories about how this person has helped that person, just one-on-one, -on -one, but I hear about it later. And that just, you know, Lewis and I, would, that just warms our heart. Now, that's individually. Um, and, and a lot of things happens through groups. I mean, uh, the first group of people within the church that uh, Betsy and I told about this new journey we're on was our growth group. And we know that uh, they're, because they're the ones who are going to be with us on it. Uh, they'll walk with us, and we know that. But, that's, but what about corporately? What about large things in the church? Well, I'll just mention a few things. We have, a, we have ways of helping people who are vulnerable that you can jump in on and be a part of it's, it's more organized than one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, some of you are, would be more comfortable with that, and that's great. We can do that. We can do that. We have benevolence needs uh, that are met. That's just, that's money, but it's money lovingly given to people who have need for money. We, we have other helps in place. Uh, uh, Damon has been announcing about the lists that the deacons are putting together of people who will jump in and help in certain areas of need. I love it that so many people have responded to that. And if you haven't, and you are able to help, you get that bulletin out again and take a look at what is available to help so, so that we can get, get engaged in meeting needs of one another, especially when one of us finds themselves in a vulnerable place, uh, even for a period of time in their life. Uh, there are others who... who we have Stephen ministers who engaged in one-on-one, -on -one, uh, just giving somebody someone to talk to. 
someone maybe who may be lonely or needs somebody to talk to or just uh, wants a visit from a friend. Uh, we're, we're involved with uh, Signal Mountain Social Services. I know that's been men- mentioned. But we do use them, and so far they have been helpful in vetting needs that come to us from the outside. Because you do need that, and so far that's worked pretty well. The Apostle Paul gives guidelines for vetting widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5, so that's an appropriate thing uh, to do. We support children uh, in Haiti. Uh, I, I don't know how many are being supported now. I, we used to be 80. I think it's, it's, uh, it's a good number. Uh, through a pastor on the ground there whom we trust. Um, now, what happens when you do these things? It builds a platform. From it, it's, First of all, it's, it's a way for you to take the word implanted and let it overflow into service. And it builds a platform from which to deepen relationships and also to launch opportunities for the gospel. Um, years ago, there was a, a huge need in our church with a family that um, for a period of time was in a very bad place in a widows and orphans category. And people in, in the church cared for their needs long term. And there was a wonderful, happy ending to that story. But here's what we as a church did not know. The relatives of that family were watching our church care for them. And when one of those relatives died, a couple of years, I think, later, they didn't call their Catholic priest to do the funeral. I'm sure he was a fine man. I don't, but they, here's what happened. They called me. And their reason, here's what they said, you people really believe it. That's what the reason that they told me. Now, that is not for anybody to pat themselves on the back. And I personally had almost nothing to do with what was done to help. But what I'm getting at is that practice should be our norm. We ought always to be that church. Are we still? I hope so. From what I hear, I think so. And let's continue what God has called us to do. Now, back to our text. Before Jesus, the Apostle Paul, I mentioned a moment ago, said his good works were just scoring points with God. They were, they were dung. But if you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, your good works will flow from the word implanted in you. And if they're not flowing, James would tell us, go back. And look intently into that mirror again. Finally, check your words, check your motives. So check your motives. And then finally, check your thought life. Check your thoughts. To keep yourself unstained by the world. The anti-Christian world system is under the sway of Satan. I'm going to read to you from James 4.4. Same book, James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's clear. He's describing the world system that's under the sway of Satan. Satan wants control of your thought life. 
And this goes back to what James said earlier about what are you feeding your mind? Is it the word implanted or is it the world implanted? What's going in? Because that's what's going to come out. Whatever you are implanting and you're reading and you're watching, you know, pornography, other things that are a part of things that shouldn't, are, are just inappropriate, inappropriate humor. All those things, whatever you're implanting, will work its way out. Remember earlier in the chapter, this all really connects pretty closely, it's pretty tight. In chapter 1, verse, verses 14 through 16, James said, each one is attempted when he is enticed and carried, uh, carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when his lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Check your thought life. Check your thought life. It's really a potent way of saying it because the word unstained, King James uses the term unspotted. It's used of a sacrificial lamb. And the sacrificial lambs had to be unspotted, had to be unblemished. If you're going to be imitators of Christ, the whole argument of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus was the unspotted, unblemished sacrifice. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was one of, uh, this was, uh, uh, one of the themes of First and Second Peter. Peter wrote this, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 2 Peter 3.14 Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, that is the second coming of Jesus, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So you get what Peter's saying? Jesus is spotless. Paul would say, be imitators of Christ. Peter then says, you be spotless. Just be spotless. <laughs> Refuse to let the world corrupt you. James is really saying the same thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, just in different words. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, and that means through your good works, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed. And, and the word transformed is the same word that was used earlier of being when Jesus was transfigured. And he, who he was on the inside became on, was on display on the outside. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You receive the word engrafted. Look at it intently. Understand how it applies to you and let that flow out of you. Check your thought life. I love the famous J.B. Phillips version. Do not let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove and practice the plan of God. The word implanted will take root and grow and then work its way out. The world implanted will work its way out. We're never going to be perfect in this life. We know that. But if we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, we should gradually look more like our Savior. So, as James says, check your words, check your motives, check your thoughts. If you're both a hearer and the doer of the word, then that is the way to keep yourself unstained from the world. Amen.